Hey, everybody. For this Context Clues episode, we are revisiting the contentious world of American pornography in preparation for next week's episode called Snuff Films. For anyone unaware of what a snuff film is, our working definition is basically a murder filmed for the entertainment of others, usually paying customers. Now, it goes without saying that on rare occasions, real murders are indeed caught on film or even purposefully recorded, but there is no evidence to show that even one murder movie has been made for the express purpose of selling to the sexually sadistic fringe. Early on in the 1970s, in the golden age of porn, people quickly drew connections between rumors of snuff films and the burgeoning porno industry, and the resulting urban legend became a symbol of the insatiable sexual revolution, movies created by sick Hollywood directors for elite sickos and counterculture degenerates who had grown bored even with the hardest of core. The myth caught fire just as the movie Deep Throat went mainstream, with porn being shown in public theaters, a shocking and salacious sign of the times. Those who were working in porn and in the entertainment industry at large made prolific use of the argument of freedom of speech to prevent the government from censoring their art And when the courts ruled in their favor, it was very much against the wishes of prominent religious voices and feminist voices alike. This urban legend was used again and again by both of these groups, who concluded that the logical end of all this sexual and spiritual depravity was the violent murder of helpless women, But as we'll see, and as is often the case, it was actually a series of hoaxes that can account for the meat of this legend. And it was propaganda from both sides of the ideological spectrum that made it bloom to its full potential, sinking into the cultural imaginary as an obvious and undisputed ugly truth. Now, don't worry. Next week's episode will not be filled with gory descriptions of these snuff films. But, you know, we are talking about murder movies, so keep that in mind when listening. What we're actually trying to do with this episode is to use the snuff film Urban Legend to show how rumors like this get started and how, without rigorous critical examination, these types of unsubstantiated claims can become self-perpetuating. We'll see how examples of transgressive art interact with religion and politics, and how hoaxes often do not die after they're debunked, as long as there are groups and individuals that can continue to use the story to advance their own agendas. 
We'll look specifically at one low-budget film hoax that would cement the idea for good. And also, we'll trace it back to where the story first got started. And as usual, it seems that all roads lead back to the Manson family. We'll also hear about how one successful goth band accidentally triggered major investigations into an apparent satanic ritual snuff film. And after that, we'll see what all of this has to do with one story from Winnie the Pooh. On that curious note, make sure you join us next week for Snuff Films, And now, please enjoy our Context Clues episode called Pornography, right after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. On this season, we'll be exploring our bizarre beliefs, unfounded fears, and fantastical thinking, how they shape our psychology and culture, and how much of our past we can find in the present. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Some would say we're drowning in a sea of garbage. Others say we're being liberated. Strategies of sexual abuse were both planned and communicated to a population of men who were going to go out and do them. Pornography only goes so far. I know only too well brings about behavior that is just too terrible to describe. Warning! This video contains adult content not suitable for children. Girls Gone Wild travels year-round, coast-to-coast, meeting thousands of hot co-eds to find the cutest, sexiest girls in the country. These are the kind of girls you've always wanted to meet, just the way you want them. Naked and ready to go wild. Like most of my peers, as a preteen, I saw almost daily ads for the mail-order VHS service Girls Gone Wild, in which barely legal college girls would flash the camera, make out, take showers together, etc. 
In generations past, before the internet, before VHS tapes, kids and teenagers got their hands on porno mags from under their dad's mattress, staring into a wild blue yonder of this strange thing called sex. These Girls Gone Wild videos gave me pause, even as a kid, and though they certainly had a curious draw for me, as most so-called obscene material did for most so-called pre-teens, I also felt that there was something inherently wrong with it. I felt shame for this out-of-the-corner-of-my-eye interest, of course, but also felt that these videos highlighted the potential unfortunate future I was in for with boys and men. Questions continue to abound, as they have for all of American history, about what pornography is doing to each generation, to the vulnerable women of this country, to our young men, and of course, to our very culture at large. Each month, pornographic websites are accessed by an estimated 60 to 70 million Americans. For all its history in this country, porn has remained a very contentious topic, with both sides of the debate using different studies and science to support their own viewpoints. For this episode, we're going to hang out in an era we haven't spent enough time in, the 1970s, when the golden age of porn was ushered in by the likes of Playboy, Hustler, Deep Throat, and Andy Warhol's Blue Movie. At this point, the battle around porn was a battle of free speech, and this battle got a little ugly and pretty hilarious at times. And then we'll hang out in the subsequent fundamentalist fallout of the 1980s, when the panic over porn's violent consequences was capped off by a surprising advocate, none other than America's current horrific darling, the allegedly handsome serial killer, Ted Bundy. As was the case with the panic around repressed satanic ritual abuse memories we covered in Satanic Panic, we'll see how two very different political forces became strange bedfellows when feminists and fundamentalists teamed up against pornography, agreeing that by nature it was guilty of glorifying and promoting sexual assault and hypnotizing boys into becoming future abusers. We'll explore the narrative that internet cyberporn has continued to create more and more hardcore or violent pornography and what the fight against smut looks like today. The truth is, with each new technology that excites and terrifies Americans, we find a way to make porn out of it, usually first and foremost. Porn has existed for all time in different forms all over the world. And yet, we continue to grapple with whether or not it's okay. We continue to ask the same questions. What does porn do to us? Or more accurately, what can porn make us do? Lewd, crude, but legal is, of course, all about pornography and the law. Like it or not, the country is wallowing in a sexual revolution. Porn has always existed. If we go back far enough, say 28,000 years, statues of large-breasted women were believed by some scholars to have been used in big, giant orgies, smashed in the middle of wild sex festivals that celebrated just that, sex. America's problematic cultural ancestors, the ancient Greeks, were known for their open sexuality, with porn right there on their red clay vases, depicting any sexual position you might imagine. But with Christianity's strange beginnings as basically an anti-sex cult, the Puritans of America, as we covered in the Gay Agenda episode, would rage against indigenous sexuality, which was far looser, far less gendered, far more queer, and certainly far less repressed. 
By the time America began to urbanize during the Industrial Revolution, cities became crammed with people of all kinds, discovering on a large scale sexual possibilities outside of their small agricultural communities, where marriage and child rearing were important to their survival. This is because many hands were needed to harvest and care for animals, and the death rate for infants was extremely high. But when the nature of work changed, so did sex. Casual dating became popular, with urbanites looking for the right partner, looking for love, not just being paired with the best person for the family's success. Cities were becoming more liberal, more like ancient Greece than Great Britain, and it made the hair stand up on middle-class America's lily-white neck. With the new advent of photography, we quickly made erotic pictures, and by the Civil War, these photos called barrack favorites proliferated, which... Side note, either depicted white women doing regular innocent activities or depicted black and indigenous women in actual sexual poses. Fucking yuck. In response to this new material, Anthony Comstock founded the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, becoming America's first true censor, and the war on pornography was officially off and running. Under what was known as the Comstock Laws, the U.S. Postal Service was prohibited from delivering items such as sexy novels, contraceptives, sex toys, and even personal erotic letters. For sending such items, citizens were fined $5,000 or spent five years in prison, sometimes both, even sent to Washington, D.C. to do hard labor in chain gangs. As soon as moving pictures were invented, we made porn with them. In the 1890s, Thomas Edison's production company produced two extremely controversial films. First, a so-called striptease called, and don't make fun of me, La Couche de la Mariée, in which a woman basically takes off a housecoat and presents herself in a very conservative nightgown. And then there was The Kiss, an 18-second silent scene of two fully clothed, middle-aged adults kissing chastely on the lips. Like you guys, they barely touch mouths. Mostly it's a cheek-to-cheek nuzzle. Go to our social media and you can see the clip. And yet, one popular critic wrote of the film... The spectacle of the prolonged pasturing on each other's lips was beastly enough in life-size on the stage, but magnified to gargantuan proportions and repeated three times over, it is absolutely disgusting. The battle continued as porn remained a relatively underground phenomenon, with obscenity prosecutions continuing under various laws, while courts also began upholding freedom of speech in many cases. Come the 1970s, however, porn would reach the mainstream, and America would begin to embrace its naughty side. In the 1960s, Summers of Love, when porn for the first time was shown in theaters, film critics and the public alike began to soften towards smut, leading a journalist in 1973 to coin the term porno chic. The start of what's referred to as the golden age of porn, you know, this kind of vibe, was catalyzed by a highly controversial anti-war erotica. On July 21st, 1969, deviants of all kinds poured into the new Andy Warhol Garrick Theater in New York, where famous avant-garde artist Andy Warhol released an art film he crassly named Fuck, which would go on to be known as the Blue Movie. The first porn film to be widely released in America, the plot showed actors Louis Waldron and Viva improvising conversations about a variety of topics, including the Vietnam War and Richard Nixon. By the middle of the film, the two actors engage in real sex before going back to talking. 
Just 10 days after its public release, New York City police arrested the entire staff of the theater and seized the film. In 1972, Deep Throat debuted and quickly became one of the most famous and profitable productions in American history. It was a comedy in many ways, something more accessible to a general public, acting as what appeared to be a liberating force, with middle-class women for the first time attending a movie featuring real sex. But the positive reception came with its critics, of course, and New York City's mayor shut down the theater, and lead actor Harry Reams was convicted on conspiracy to distribute obscene material. The star of Deep Throat was a woman named Susan Borman, who went by the pseudonym Linda Lovelace. She would become an instant sex symbol celebrity and would soon do a spread in a new magazine that combined journalism and porn, sparking a movement both considered revolutionary and sexist all at once. Playboy may be the most famous dirty magazine of all time, with its still controversial figurehead, the late Hugh Hefner, who, for better or for worse, created a new profile for American sexuality. But its second runner-up was creating a much larger stir in the battle for free speech. Larry Flint's Hustler is probably the most uncompromising porno magazine yet. Enough to make even Hugh Hefner, father of Playboy, wince. Only two types of people really oppose pornography. People that either don't know what they're talking about or the ones who don't know what they're missing. Considered a champion of free speech by some and a peddler of exploitive smut by others, no one could deny that this man changed America with both his work and personality. Larry Flint, the creator of the less classy Hustler magazine, was enemy number one for both the fundamentalist right and the anti-porn feminists of the left. The millionaire eccentric was known for his pink jet that once belonged to Elvis, the gold vagina pendant he wore around his neck, along with the many pinky rings, the massive orgies he liked to talk about, and even, this is so bizarre, a complete replica of the log cabin he lived in as a child created in his basement. The bizarre part is that during said childhood, little Larry had his first apparent sexual experience with a chicken on their property before killing it out of shame. Nonetheless, he created a statue in that scene to commemorate the formative event. His career began with the first naked photo leak of a celebrity, something we still experience frequently today, when in August of 1975, Flint sold over a million copies of the issue that contained racy paparazzi photos of Jackie Kennedy. Eventually, the magazine began to take cheap and often extreme shots at public figures that Flint believed to be hypocritical. He called the column Asshole of the Month, and the stated goal, according to editor Alan McDonald, quote, was to make the subject cry. One target of Flint's was a familiar character here at American Hysteria, the late Reverend Jerry Falwell, the fundamentalist who called out Tinky Winky's homosexuality, among many other forms of anti-gay propaganda. Unsurprisingly, Falwell was also a key player in the anti-porn movement of the 1980s when he stated in Time magazine, We recognize the existence of pornography and the impossibility of stamping it out, but we do want to drive it back to Sleestown to live amongst the roaches where it belongs. Flint wasn't about to let Falwell go unscathed in the pages of Hustler, and the no-holds-barred publication printed a satirical piece that upon reading reportedly caused Falwell to collapse to the floor. 
This article, which would somehow go on to be a landmark piece in the battle for just what free speech entailed, was a fake interview with Falwell about his first sexual experience, which Hustler claimed was with his own mother. Almost immediately, Falwell sued Flint for $45 million in one of many lawsuits he would face. And in classic televangelist style, Falwell asked his congregation for donations to pay for his legal bills. Do you uh, have a, an aversion or antipathy to organized religion? You better bet your sweet ass I do. And to the Bible? Goddamn right I do. Have you ever said, speaking of the Bible, this is the biggest piece of shit ever written? Goddamn right I did. Is that really a personally held conviction of your own? You goddamn oh, Jake, fucking right it is. Do you believe that because of your aversion to the Bible and organized religion, that that gives you license to hold up to ridicule and scorn leaders of religious movements? Objection, it's irrelevant, right. it's argumentative. Free expression is absolute. In the end, in a landmark decision, the Supreme Court ruled 8-0 to zero that Falwell would only receive a measly $200,000 for his emotional distress, citing that it did not override Flint's right to free speech. This certainly wasn't the last that the legal system would see of Flint, who once was forcibly removed from the Supreme Court for calling the justices, quote, eight assholes and a token cunt, before removing his starched button-up to reveal the words, fuck this court, printed on a t-shirt. After this, he was driven to a local police station in his own limo, flanked dramatically by two giant American flags. Another time, during an arraignment, he yelled at the judge, quote, take my ass to jail, you cocksucker. He even showed up once to testify while wearing an army helmet, a Purple Heart medal, and a diaper made from an American flag. Beyond its value in the battle for free speech, Hustler is complicated to talk about. It was a deeply problematic magazine full of racist cartoons and, of course, rampant sexism. A 1978 cover story read, quote, We will no longer hang women up like pieces of meat beside an image of a naked woman being stuffed into a meat grinder. But at the same time, Hustler was showing things, no matter how poorly presented, that had never been seen in a mainstream context. These included images of unclothed pregnant women, trans women, threesomes that included two men, and interracial couples. It was this sloppy progressiveness that would almost end Larry Flint's life when serial killer and white supremacist Joseph Paul Franklin shot him in 1978, paralyzing him from the waist down. Franklin, a man who'd been murdering black and Jewish people all across the country from 1977 to 1980, said in an interview with CNN, quote, I saw that interracial couple he had photographed there having sex. It just made me sick. I think whites marry with whites, blacks with blacks. I threw the magazine down and thought, I'm going to kill that guy. The more I learned about sexual abuse in all of its forms, including incest, including uh, prostitution, including battery, including rape, um, the more I understood that pornography was like the nerve center for all of these forms of abuse. It was kind of the Pentagon. It was the war room. More after this. And now, back to the show. 
Outraged feminists and fundamentalists were not amused by Larry Flint's American call for free speech, nor his problematic personal brand of social progressiveness. They had been forming a strange best friendship over the earthquake of the now discredited recovered memory therapy and the allegations of satanic cults sexually abusing children. And they both agreed that porn was damaging for women and could lead to assault and rape. Prominent feminists like Katherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin argued that porn, in the words of Robin Morgan, quote, is the theory and rape is the practice. Soon after, this anti-porn fellowship gained a new and powerful ally as President Reagan created the Mies Commission, filled to the brim with fundamentalist activists, and together they used shoddy research to conclude that porn that appeared violent caused harmful effects on viewers, trivialized rape, and encouraged sexual violence against women. They purposefully used the panic around child sexual abuse to connect consensual adult porn to child porn, a topic too vast for me to include here. Soon, they found a way to make their narrative more compelling when they caught their biggest fish yet, as the leader of the extremely conservative Focus on the Family organization as part of the Mies Commission sat down for a little fireside chat with America's favorite serial killer. This whole panic around hardcore porn and its effect on psychological development was spurred on by the prominent sadist serial killers of the 1970s and 80s. In 1989, just hours before the brutal rapist and murderer Ted Bundy took his final seat in Florida State Prison's electric chair, he palled around with James Dobson, an important figure in the anti-porn movement as well as the concurrent movement against gay rights. Together, they talked about the pornography that had first piqued Bundy's interest in masochism and indirectly linked this media to serial killing by explaining how his need for more and more extreme sexual stimuli grew until he began committing real-world violence. Then, at a certain time, it's instrumental in what I would say crystallizing it, making it into something which is almost like a separate entity inside. And that in, at that point, you're at the verge, or I was at the verge of acting out on this on this kind of these kinds of things. Now, I really want to understand that you had gone about as far as you could go in your own fantasy life mm-hmm. with printed material, yeah. and and then there was the urge to take that little step or big step over to a physical right. uh, event. They spoke in particular of his early exposure to something called detective magazines, common pulp publications that featured some very controversial covers. Before this, I'd never heard of detective magazines. There were many different publications, but the most popular was one called True Detective that told sensationalist true crime stories, the kind of grisly exploitation that we tend to bulk at today. Interestingly, Anne Rule, the woman who would go on to write the famous book about the Bundy case, The Stranger Beside Me, got her start writing for these pulp magazines. Like today, women tended to be the biggest consumers of true crime, so True Detective started a different kind of marketing campaign, one created with the hope of attracting a male readership. You really have to see these covers to believe them. Their realistic images showed women who were barely clothed, often bound and gagged or screaming, clearly about to be beaten and raped, strangled to death or stabbed by a man wearing a stocking cap over his face. Headlines of these issues included, I hit her in the head with a bowling pin, sex monster at large, 22 knives around a pretty girl's body, California's latest mass killer got his sex kicks cutting off women's heads with a power saw, and of course, 
the kinky case of the mutilated beauties. In addition to these deeply exploitive images and titles, many of them did not even contain a corresponding story inside. They were just images for the sake of themselves. It's not surprising that serial killers point to these magazines as early inspiration. Bundy wasn't even close to the only murderer to mention their early experiences with this type of publication. Dennis Rader, known as BTK, a name he gave himself meaning bind, torture, kill, spoke of finding violent pulp magazines under the seat of his father's car, his favorite being the sex-crazed photographer and his graveyard of models with an image of a wide-eyed woman bound and gagged. The co-ed killer Ed Kemper, David Berkowitz, Richard Ramirez, Otis Toole, and Ed Gein have all spoken of their early experience with these magazines. In reaction to Bundy's so-called confession, a piece of legislation known as the Bundy Bill was created by none other than Senate Majority Leader and clearly super fun guy Mitch McConnell. Though it didn't pass, the law would have allowed alleged victims of sexual violence to sue the producers, publishers, distributors, and even those exhibiting any porn that was considered to have spurred on the assault, a symbolic threat to the producers of pornography, a message that they themselves were partially responsible for this extreme type of violent behavior. As the internet rose to popular use in the early 90s, there was no controlling the cyber porn epidemic, and this message became resoundingly clear when President Bill Clinton signed into law the Communications Decency Act, which would criminalize anyone who produced, quote, indecent content that was accessible to minors, an extremely broad category that would fine and jail even those who posted in chat rooms that children could access. It was struck down when the American Civil Liberties Union took the administration to court on the grounds of free speech. But the line of thinking behind the bill remains to this day. How does access to porn affect Americans, especially the kids who continue to have unprecedented access to any variety of this indecency? Just three years ago, a radical feminist and a Republican politician from Utah teamed up to declare porn a public health crisis. Senator Todd Weiler created a bill after meeting feminist sociologist Gail Dines at an anti-pornography summit at the U.S. Capitol building, where she referred to porn not as a moral issue, but as a danger to the physical and emotional health of Americans. Weiler loved it, and he took the language back to his home state, presenting a bill to the floor. Partly because of Larry Flint's American flag diapered battle for free speech, there are too many laws and precedents protecting First Amendment rights. So his bill was not able to allocate public spending or create new punishments for consumers or creators of obscene material. Again, it was a symbolic gesture meant to mold Utah's attitudes away from porn acceptance. But the majority of the science and the studies that we have so far contradict this idea that porn is a public health crisis. But Weiler has his own science, pointing to a Mormon-founded group called Fight the New Drug. Their facts page makes some very scientifically sound claims like, quote, porn hates family and porn leaves you lonely. Additionally, the group bought more than 100 billboards in San Francisco that said, porn kills love, also creating some misleadingly hip t-shirts with the same statement, hashtag porn kills love. What a weird thing to wear. The truth is, we really don't know how porn affects the development of adolescents because scientists and psychologists simply can't test this question ethically. 
But we can't really claim that the wide availability of porn and its more hardcore content has created an epidemic of sexual assault as well as anti-woman attitudes. A report by the 2013 U.S. Department of Justice cited a 58% decrease in reported rapes from 1995 to 2010, as well as the lowest rates for teenage pregnancy and STDs, just as the Internet generation came of age. This is not to say that porn has definitely played a central role in decreasing these numbers. There are a ton of factors to consider here, but these stats make it clear that porn itself isn't responsible for some kind of surge in sexual violence. There are, in fact, two camps of thought here, one being that porn increases violent behavior by demonstrating it, the other being that this type of media might actually work as a kind of venting system, preventing violence in the real world. Now, this definitely doesn't mean that there aren't extremely problematic elements to the porn industry, nor does it mean that pornography itself isn't harmful to certain individuals. Susan Borman, the star of Deep Throat, claimed in a 1980 autobiography that she was coerced into her work on the film with a literal gun held to her head. Some who worked on the set have disputed this, but regardless of the specifics, there is evidence that Borman was physically and emotionally abused on set. Girls Gone Wild creator Joe Francis pled no contest to child abuse charges when it was discovered that he had included underage girls in some of his videos. And then in 2011, he was convicted of false imprisonment and assault after three women came forward with accounts of being beaten and kept at his house against their will. Revenge porn became extremely popular in the mid-2000s, with intimate pictures and videos posted of ex-girlfriends without their consent, including their names, links to their social media, as well as home and workplace addresses. As we talked about, many serial killers have cited violent images as catalysts or at least inspiration for their gruesome acts. And then, of course, there's the issue of pornography featuring children and teenagers. But again, that's too vast of a topic to cover in this episode. As Bundy claimed in his little chat with James Dobson, a now popular refrain about pornography is that the soft stuff leads to a need for more and more seemingly violent depictions. This claim is often made by simply calling attention to the proliferation of hardcore porn since the internet's beginnings, much of which puts the violent covers of those detective magazines to shame. And yet, a 2018 analysis of Pornhub's most popular videos undertaken by sociologist Erin Shore and Kimberly Sida found that videos that demonstrated non-consensual acts were actually becoming less popular, ranked lower and with fewer likes than those that depict consensual acts showing women's pleasure, also noticing that this sample showed shorter scenes of aggression than previous years. The problem with this debate is that both sides have research studies they use to support their viewpoints, often ignoring the nuances that might muddy their porn is good or porn is bad analysis. Some studies seem to show that early exposure to pornography negatively affects how men view women and may make them more likely to view pornographic sex as normal, damaging their future relationships and possibly leading to sexual assault. However, in a different study that lasted 35 years and cataloged 25,000 American responses, those who viewed porn were surprisingly more likely to have positive views of women and women's rights. Those who had watched a porno in the last year also on average were more supportive of women in politics and in the workplace, and also supported access to abortion at a higher rate. 
And yet, there have been other studies that seem to prove that this may only be true for religious men, whereas non-religious men who view porn may hold less favorable views of women's equality. I don't have the answers today, but it does seem that maybe Hustler and Playboy, the blue movie and Deep Throat can be both progressive and regressive somehow at the same time. As one sociologist explained, it's not really about the porn itself, it's about the person viewing it. That's what makes the difference. If we're worried about pornography's effect on the next generation, having critical and honest conversations about pornography, about its false depictions, about consent is an easy way to help kids navigate the vast variety of content now available online. Because when we aren't willing to give adolescents the information they need through comprehensive sex ed and when parents are still too uncomfortable to be frank, kids turn to porn as an active teacher. And I think we can likely all agree that that probably isn't for the best. And so I do agree with Utah Senator Todd Weiler when he said that parents must be more open to talking to their kids about pornography. But perhaps our approach on the topic needs to change. New findings are demonstrating that repressing the viewing of porn might in turn strengthen the desire to watch it and cause sexual issues including porn addiction, which has been known to harm relationships and intimacy among men. In September of 2010, Utah State University psychologist Michael Tuig performed research to examine how moving away from shame-based thinking affected pornography addictions. Using a sample of Mormon LDS church members from Utah, they were encouraged to engage with their feelings to treat their thoughts and emotions with more compassion and approach their desire with less judgment and shame, the opposite of how their strict religious upbringings had encouraged total repression. The study found that there was a 92% decrease in the amount of porn consumed by the subjects over a 12-week period. When we create this culture of shame around pornography, those who make their living through its responsible production are demonized and made vulnerable to generalizations, all permanent residents in Jerry Falwell's sleaze town. This attitude and even recent legislation like Trump's FOSTA-SESTA bill that on its surface sought to combat sex trafficking but also had dire effects for sex workers, driving the market underground and thus making the production of porn, a market that's always existed despite the law's resistance, much less regulated and much less safe. Senator Weiler and others mourn the rising divorce rate and the loss of intimacy in relationships, and some studies have shown porn addiction to be part of that picture. Beyond pornography addiction, there really isn't enough evidence to tell us that casual viewership affects the viewer or women in general in a negative way. From the sex festivals of our earliest ancestors to the strange recesses of the modern internet, pornography is complicated. But it will never go away and it will never be contained by our collective shame. It can be both progressive and problematic, as we saw with Hustler, the golden age of porn being at the same time revolutionary and regressive, just like all of our social movements. Perhaps Utah Senator Todd Weiler should pause to consider the new research around shame and attempt to decrease the stigma of his apparent public health crisis of smut, especially because a Harvard study from 2009 found that Utah's religious residents consumed the most pornography of anyone in America. This was American Hysteria. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. 
Assistant produced by Derek Smith. Produced and edited by Clear Como Studios with research assisted by Riley Smith. Recorded on location at Densmore Studios in Seattle. And another huge thank you to Miranda Ziegler this week for all of her vital help on this episode. Come over and follow us on social media if you want to see some of the things you hear about on American Hysteria, as well as various clips of teen dramas and me acting out teen dramas on an almost daily basis. Have a great week as you grapple with the complicated nature of pornography. Will you turn into a serial killer? Will I? It's the question I ask myself every day. I'll see you all in Town. The headlines remind us daily. The world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com